All right, we're in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, however you want to say it. Um, Chapter 9, we're going to start at verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, son of Abel, son of Zerah, son of Becherath, son of Ophiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Salisha. Sorry. But they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zup, Zuppah, Saul said to his servant, who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a, he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So let us go there. Perhaps he can tell the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone. There is no present to to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where there was a man of God. As they went up to the hill to the city, they met a young woman coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because of the people. Have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited to eat. Now go up, for you will see him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you to the man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Genesee, proud of you. Well done. That's only half of what I have to preach this morning, so buckle up. You have no lunch plans. Your lunch plans are listen to this sermon. I'm just kidding. We'll get through it quick. We get to enter into this. I wasn't here last week. Uh, looking back, I should have kicked it off, but I was in California. I don't regret that one bit. Uh, so I'm here day two of this new series, and we're in the middle of the Old Testament of the Bible, which if you're anything like me, 
The Bible is hard and confusing, especially early on. It's daunting. It's overwhelming. That's why we're having a class after the service, how to have a quiet time, because the Bible is not as accessible early on as it should be. It's it just scary. It's like all these stories we get brought into. But here's what I just want us to know on the front end as we enter into this particular story. This is a story given to us by God. It's the story of the universe. It's the story of what God is doing in this world. This is the story. Meta is the word. This is the meta narrative. This is what God is doing. Everything else happening in the world, in your life, in your home, in other countries, wherever you look, whatever else happening fits in and fits under the banner of this story. This is the most epic story ever, and it's the true story of the universe. And we get to dive into this section in first and second Samuel where we get to see some of the more epic characters. I've got the slides for the next few series. So we're looking at the life of Saul right now. Right now we're going to kind of study, we're going to see what we just saw, heard Genesee read, the life of Saul. This is the beginning of Saul as king. In a few weeks, we're going to start the life of David. He's one of the more famous characters in the Bible. He wrote a lot of Psalms. He's an artist. He's, a, he's everything we want to be. He's a poet. He's all these things. We're going to spend a lot of time on David. And then we're going to round out the year heading into the Christmas season looking at the life of Solomon, who is David's son. He's wise, and he's the biggest knucklehead in the world, much like a lot of us. We have great moments, and we have all these moments where we wish we could have back. But we're going to just be in this Old Testament for a while now, walking through these grand epic stories of the people of God, specifically the first three kings of God. And here's what we're going to do today. I want to answer three questions. The first is, what is the story of the kingdom of God told to us through the scriptures? So that's not in the text. I just want to kind of show us the story. And then specifically, we're going to then zoom in at Saul. What's, what role does Saul play in this story? And then finally, I want to ask the question to end our time. What can we not miss as we look at Saul? Like if we're to leave here, what's the thing we cannot miss as we study the person Saul? That's what we're going to do. What's the story? What's Saul's place? And what do we have to see? What can we not miss with Saul? That's what I hope to do. The Spirit's going to do what he's going to do. I want to stop and just pause and just honor the fact that the Spirit is here and he's at work. So let's pray together and quiet our hearts, posture ourselves to learn And to be invited into the story of God once again. God, this is your story, Saul. is yours. You're the ultimate author and creator. You're the, the one behind the pen writing this story. We want to learn from you. We want to learn from this section. We want to leave here more in love with you because of our time spent. So God, make all that happen this morning as we gather. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. So here's the first question. Simple question, not simple to answer, but simple to get. What is the story of the kingdom of God? What's the story the Bible's telling? So if a lot of people take this as a rule book. It's got rules. It's not a rule book. People take this to be like a religious manual. It's got religious things in it. It's not a manual. At its core, it's a story with the beginning and an end and a lot in the middle. What gets confusing, though, is if you look at it and break it up into pieces, if you go to the table of contents, you don't have to go there. There's 66 books within this book. 39 are Old Testament, 27 are New Testament. Genesis is the first, Revelation is last. What are those 39 books? How do they fit into the story? What's interesting, out of those 39 Old Testament books, only 17 of them are actually the story of God continuing. 
Everything else is like soundtrack and poems filling in the story. But there's only 17 of those first 39 books that are actually telling the story of God. So I want to spend a little time, I don't always do this, get a little teachery, a little nerdy, just to kind of help us. If you're a note taker, this will help you. But here's how you could break down this entire Bible into six parts and know the story of God. We do this class called Surge. It puts it on every year. It's kicking off in September. But this is quarter one of Surge. It's what's the story God is telling in the Bible. And here's how you could break down the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2, that would be the beginning. Adam and Eve naked in a garden, that story. God establishes his kingdom. God existed before time. He's never had a beginning. He'll never have an end. He's always there. And out of his love and abundance of love, he speaks and he creates a world. What does he create? He creates a kingdom with a garden at the center for him to rule over. Adam and Eve to spread out and to cultivate and to fill the earth. Just listen to me. I want a beautiful kingdom. And their very first act is rebellion. Genesis 3. Adam and Eve see God, they hear God, they understand God, and they choose to do the opposite. And they start us off on the path we all are born into called sin and rebellion. There's rebellion in the kingdom. In that same chapter, God in his grace, as he always does, he pairs his sin with his sovereign goodness and grace. And in Genesis 3.15, he whispers something that he's going to spend the rest of this book unpacking. He says, you guys have screwed up royally, my translation, but I'm going to fix this. From the seed of the woman... I'm going to create someone who's going to crush the serpent's head. That's the snake, the one who was causing the deception. That serpent will be crushed. But in the process, the seed of woman will have his heel bruised. Translation, there will be blood and there will be a battle. But I will fix this problem and I'll fix it through you, Adam and Eve. And he spends the whole Old Testament and the rest of the Bible, the Old Testament especially, sort of putting flesh and color on that expectation. All we know at that point is Adam and Eve. There's going to be a human who fixes this. The whole rest of the Old Testament is God filling that in. Until we get to behold the king. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus. Born of Israel. Born in the line of Abraham. David. He is the one sent to be the king. And you see Jesus' life. And it ends on a cross. Then he comes out of his own grave and ascends into heaven to sit on the throne. He is now the king over heaven and earth. The kingdom has been reestablished. And there's a good king who will never be removed. And he sends his spirit to his people. His people are those who will listen to his voice and trust him. And he fills them with the spirit. And those spirit-filled people, they're called Christians these days are to go out and spread the news of the kingdom of God. And that's what you see in the book of Acts, the start of the church, all the way through Jude. Great little book. That's what we named our kid. It means loud praise. And Jude is a loud praiser. They're spreading the news of the kingdom until revelation, what we're waiting for, the king to come back to set up shop and his throne here on this earth once again. And heaven and earth will be reunited. And all those who love and trust Jesus will live with him forever without another tear to be shed ever. That's the story of the Bible. We're not selling rules. We are giving a story and we're inviting people into a story. This is what we get to do as the church. Now specifically in that, the king chooses Israel. The Old Testament, hands down, is the most confusing part of the Bible because it's so far in the past. So many different languages, so many different cultural things that just don't make sense to us. But how do we sort of summarize and get to Saul through the Old Testament? Here's, there's 17 books of the Old Testament that tell the story. And then you got Psalms and 
Proverbs and all these sort of poetic books that aren't telling the story. They're just kind of filling in with nuggets of truth and beautiful poems and things to listen to. But out of the 17 books, what's the story that gets us to Saul? Again, if you're a note taker, here's how I describe the Bible as far as just shorthand. The first five books written by a guy named Moses, very famous guy. He's got a Disney movie after him. I mean, he's doing pretty good for himself. Becoming a people, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is God speaking to Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through you. And then through that line, he forms a people until you end. And there are people in a land that's not their own Egypt and they're slaves, but they have become the people of God. They got the law of God. They've got the presence of God. They are a people. The people of God are formed in the first five chapters. Turn the chap- next book in the Bible. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, my people need a land. Joshua, great name, leads, he follows Moses. He leads them into the land and he sets up their land. Joshua, Judges, Ruth is a picture of God's people now having a land in the story. They've got rules, they've got land, they've got a king, but they don't like that king because he's not like the king over there and the king over there and the king over there. And it's not like that over there. And Trey last week said, 1 Samuel 8, Israel says, I want a king like them. I don't want this king. I want a king like these guys. So now he gives them a king. They become a people with a land and a king. That's where we're at in the story. First and second Samuel is the epic. David, Saul, Solomon, all these big guys. And then the kingdom splits. First and second kings is a picture of all those kings that come after those guys. And first and second chronicles is one of the more boring sections of Old Testament because it kind of is just filling in names of all that happened through the time of the king. But they become a people with a land and a king. This is where we fit in the story. And the Old Testament ends with these little books here. We studied one last summer, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And then they get kicked out of their land because they do not listen to God. And he kicks them out through the people of Babylon and Assyria and all these empires and they're exiled. And now they don't have a king. Babylon's in charge. And they don't have a land. They're refugees. And it's God's sort of whisper to us in this room, this is what it means to be the people of God going forth. You don't have a land and you don't have a king here on earth. You are my people scattered. I'm still your king, I'll fill you with my spirit, but this is not your home. You are citizens of heaven. You're here for a short time. That's the story of the Old Testament. So where we're at here is Israel getting a land, getting a king, specifically what Genesee just read, we get to see Saul here. So here, what is the role of Saul in the kingdom of God? Very simply, Saul's job was to do this, to be the first king of Israel. You got one job to do, Saul. You're the first one. Don't screw this up. And what we get to do this morning is walk through. Just So if you read chapter 9 and chapter 10, or if you do audio Bible, I've been listening to it over and over and over, just trying to sit in the story. It's like 12 minutes long. So I'm not going to read everything because just to read through all this, Genesis already took up a bunch of my time. (laughs) But I want to, on the screen, we're just going to kind of walk through piece by piece in this story and we're going to let the story by God's spirit speak to us. Rather than me make a bunch of points about, here's what I think God's God's story makes the point. And we get a walk through. So here's the first thing we're going to see is the introduction of Paul. Look at him. Look at this boy. Everybody go to chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Let's see the first king of Israel. 
There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, son of Ebael, son of Zeor, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. I want that description. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. There's your king. Last week, chapter 8, we want a king. Samuel's like, I can't believe they're doing this to you, God. Don't let them do this. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. Turn the page. The camera zooms. We got a guy making a video here. Here's their king. And God plays it up big time. He's tall. He's good looking. Really good looking. Like all of us would know who this guy is. He'd be taller than every man in this room. Every lady would be like, (laughs) he's wealthy. There's your king. And God invites us into the story of the kingdom of Israel. Here is your first king. He checks all the boxes. You want a king like the other nations? I'll give you better than the other nations. Taller, more of a warrior, better looking, everything you'd want to check. Here is your God. Just pause right there. For the Christians in this room, I'm not, I know not everyone follows Jesus yet. Part of being a church gathering is inviting people in different parts of the journey. But a big part of Christian sanctification, that means growth, is being able to stop at points in your life and look back and recall what you wanted in life. And then compare it to what you actually got. And then trace God's hand and see God knows better. And next time I face a situation, I'm going to just trust that God is going to give me what I need. And what I want is not that big a deal. And God's setting the people of God up to know that lesson. Because we do not get it because we are a hard-headed bunch. Because we look at this tall, good-looking, stud of a leader. What does God want us in this room to remember? He's like, just so you know, Christians today, fast forward, you guys are more, you've progressed further, you got more technology, you're a lot smarter than these tribal people, but you're still people that look for the obvious option rather than the faithful option. Oh, that's flashier, that seems easier. In any realm of life, dating, we've got endless people dating and getting engaged, and you talk to them and you disciple them, it's always like, well, what's the obvious thing for me to do. No, 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 no. That's not what God is calling any of us to. It's what's the faithful response in this moment. Saul was obvious. He wasn't the faithful option. Christians should see this and like get smacked in the face. If you're not a Christian, you don't have the spirit, you're not going to see it. But Christians should see this. Like, this is my life. This is the story of my life. I wanted that. I wanted to be married. I wanted to be rich. I wanted this. I wanted this, and God gave me over to the souls of this world. It was not what I actually needed. I needed something better. I needed him. We don't leave the story here. We get, actually get to experience this tall, good-looking stud of a man. Let's keep going. Part two of this story, which I titled, Where's My Donkey? Verse three. <laughs> From the donkeys of Kish... Saul's father, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. Just remember, we just looked at how good looking this guy was. 
He's up in the crowd like, the camera zooms over. And now he's in a field. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you. Rise and go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. God is the greatest storyteller in the world. There's your king. Check, 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 check. First action. Wandering around looking for his father's donkeys. The King James would translate this, he couldn't find his father's ass. There's your king. Can't find a donkey. Behold your king, people. God is not messing around when he tells stories. And he's not letting us avoid the decisions we've made. He's over there looking for donkeys. Like, this is the most... Like, think of political sort of commentary on the most extreme sides of whatever side. They're just looking for Biden to say something, do something, to use it, and to prop it up in a video and be like, look, there's your king, or vice versa on the right side. Look at what he said. Look what Bush said or Trump said. This is that moment. This is your king, and he's wandering around looking for a donkey. This is the guy who's going to lead you and guide you and protect you and take you to the next phase of this life, and he can't find a donkey. God wants us to see this. But where's my donkey? Maybe the story gets better. Part three. Let's read verse five and six together. Now when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to a servant, servant who was with him. This is Saul's first voiced desire. Let's go back. Lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about me. Pause right there. This is your warrior. You're a valiant king. You got one mission. Go find the donkey. We should go back. My daddy's probably scared. I need to. This is his first problem, his first dilemma. Now, I was telling Aubrey last night, I am so excited to teach this. Part of it is Saul has kind of fit into sort of a character for me in my Christian life. He's kind of like the Pharisee to me, like if you know that. Like I just assume everything about him is bad. But as I've studied and studied and just watched him, he's pretty neutral. Like, he doesn't crave to be king. He's not the one knocking down doors saying, I need to lead these people. He's just kind of a dude doing his own thing. He's gifted. He's tall. He's good looking. He's all these things. But he's not asking for this. He just kind of gets sucked into the story of God. And now he faces one problem. Where are the donkeys? He's like, let's give up. <laughs> Keep reading. Verse 6, but he, that being the servant with Saul, said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. Let's go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. There's a tell. What kind of leader is Saul going to be? He faces a problem. He wants to quit. One option could have been what his servant told him to do. Hey, let's seek the wisdom of the Lord. Let's go find the man of God who would tell us what God has to say. Will guide us to the donkeys because God has the wisdom. Let's go over here and ask for help. It's not even on Saul's radar. The servant has to bring it up. Hey, let's go seek the Lord through this man Samuel. 
It's called a flinch. Saul's flinch when he's faced with dilemma, problem, is not to seek what the Lord has to say. I was thinking about like origin villain stories. You got Joker. All these like great villains have these, if they, the director lets you in on the story, their origin story is like this pain. And, like you think of Black Panther and Killmonger, like rejection, and I'm going to get back at this. And that's how they became who they are. Saul, this is his origin story. How did he become who he was? He simply never sought out the Lord's wisdom on stuff. That should like a lot of us. Like our flinch is not, what's God have to say about this? Saul does not think like that. He thinks, I'm done. Let's give up. I'm going to go get a drink, see if some girls check me out. No, no, no. Let's go talk to the man of the Lord. And they do that. Part four, God has a special secret Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. This is a little parenthetical statement, meaning it's happening at a different time. God kind of zooms out and shows you a little interaction that Samuel and God have regarding our boy Samuel. Verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of of the Philistines, for I have seen, or for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Pause right there. So off to the side, Samuel's here, and he's talking with the Lord, and the Lord says, "The man you're looking for is going to be a man from the land of Benjamin. He's going to be the one to save my people. This is the plan. And in this, you sort of see who the real hero of the story is, just in this little interaction God has with. Samuel, why is God doing this? He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Why is God intervening? For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Why is God intervening? Because this people who rejected them, chapter 8. Remember, we don't want you to be our king. We want kings like that. They've rejected him, and they're crying out. And God says, I'm answering their call because I see them. And I've heard their cries, and I'm going to give them Samuel, who's going to be a very insufficient king, but he's going to do part of the job. Like as we see the story of Saul and David, God's finger, fingerprints are all over the sort of backstory to everything going on. Why is Saul king? Because God heard the cries of his people, and he interceded. Now that's a Christian unique promise we have in this world. That in our rejection, our rebellion, our disobedience, our unfaithfulness, our lawlessness, fill in the blank with whatever, God still hears us and cares for us. Me and Aubrey are watching this new Netflix documentary on the LDS fundamentalists. It's insane, and it makes me just want to throw up all over the place because it's take the spiritual authority and abusing people by creating a line of obedience that you have to follow Otherwise, you are damned for all of eternity. So you've got all these people who are just wanting to please God through this prophet, this human. I cannot disobey. All these interviews, I could not disobey. I could not disobey. I could not disobey. In Christian, we don't live with that sort of fear. I have disobeyed. I have screwed up. I have messed up royally over and over and over again. But guess what? I can still cry out and he will hear me. First Peter says, cast all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. And that's what we see. The people of God in their rejection and rebellion cry out and God sends them 
a king. Part five, what do we see in this? Go to verse 17 now. The donkeys are fine. Thank God. Uh, Verse 17. Now when Samuel saw the Lord, when Samuel saw, when Samuel saw Saul, that's a lot of S's. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Pause right there. So now Samuel's sitting there. Saul walks up and the Lord says, that's the guy who's going to, what's the word he uses? He could have used a lot of words. Not lead, not support, not guide, not direct, not save, not help to flourish, not to lift up, not to empower. There's the guy who will restrain my people. Every time that word is used in the Old Testament, it's negative. The only time it's potentially neutral is in this area here, but I think God's trying to say, hey, just so you know, there's your king, and here's what he's going to do. He's going to restrain you. Like, even as we think about sort of government and leadership in a broken, fallen world waiting for King Jesus to come back, we all live within restraining governments and leadership and kings or presidents or Congress or whatever it may be. And this just reminds us, yeah, that's how it's going to be for us who have rejected God as king. All of our leaders are going to be restraining. At their very best, they'll do what the New Testament says they should do and restrain evil and punish evildoers. At their worst, which all of them have elements of the worst in them, whatever sort of leadership you're under, they will not only restrain evil, but they will restrain the people of God, the ways of God, the words of God, the desires of God. And we live in a world of restraining leadership. And we can fight, and we need to play our part and do whatever, but we just got to realize, as the people of God, it's always going to feel like that. It's going to feel restraining. Move to any country, move to any land, change governmental type all you want, and there's going to be a restraint there because we have rejected the king who gives life. So we get the king or the queen or the congress or the boss who restrains. Like I was golfing with my buddy who I hadn't seen in forever, and he's like, man, we got a lot to catch up on. And we were talking Supreme Court decisions and yada, yada. He's a Christian guy, too. He's like, your job must be so hard. I'm like, why? He's like, you got to stand up and talk about gender and say all these things. And you got to say all this stuff about sexuality and say all this stuff about Roe v. Wade and be pro-life. And I said, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's kind of hard. But I, as I navigate being a pastor of real people in real jobs, in real situations, the hard part is hearing some of your stories on the restraints you guys are under. And how do I navigate this faithfully as a Christian? How do I live in this company? How do I work in this school setting? How do I do this when the restraining leadership feels like this? What do I do as a Christian? That's very hard. So just No, part of my job as pastor and leaders of the church is to pray for you in your vocations where you're at to be faithful in a situation that is going to be restraining. Why is it that way? Because we've rejected God as king. We want a king like everyone else. Great, there you go. Restraint, 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 restraint. There's your guy. King restrainer. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said to him, Tell, him, tell me where is the house of the seer. That's a seer is like, it means prophet, but they didn't use prophet then. It's somebody who hears from God, sees what God sees, and brings it to people. The person who sees and hears the God stuff. Verse 19, Samuel said to Saul, I am the seer. 
Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. In the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. Just so you know, as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for him who is all that is desirable in Israel, Israel, is it not for you and for your father's house? He's basically saying, Saul, you're, you're the big deal. Let's stop talking about the donkeys right now. And Saul answered, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why have you spoken to me in this way? He says, don't worry, the donkeys are found. The tension now is on you. You're going to be the prince. You're going to rule. Me? Have you seen me? Have you seen my clan? We keep going. Part six. Now Samuel tells the secret that was told to him. Go to 9, verse 26. So Samuel saw meat. He says, let's sleep on it, get some food. We'll talk in the morning. Yeah, I've got a big religious day, but you're kind of the key focus of this. Verse 26. The next day they wake up. At the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof. Up that I may send you on your way. So Saul rose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. So they walk on to be a part of this religious ceremony, which is going to be actually focused on Saul. Verse 27. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell that servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Tell your servant to go up ahead. I met with the Lord yesterday. I've got something to share with you right now, Saul. Remember, Saul is like this passive, neutral recipient. He's just kind of in a wake that's moving him in a direction. Nothing about anything Saul has done has said, this guy really should be king, other than his physical appearance. And now, this is the moment he's going to be king. Why? Because God said so. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people? Pause right there. He could have used the word king. I think it's God's another way to just kind of speak truth into the moment. You're the prince. There's a king, but you're going to be the prince of my people. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand, the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. I love it. He calls his people his heritage. These are my people. You get to be prince. And here's going to be the signs. And he gives them three signs. I won't read it because we spend all time reading this. You're going to go out and you're going to meet two guys and they're going to do this for you. And you're going to go out and you're going to meet three guys, and they're going to have goats and bread and all this stuff, and they're going to give you some of it. And then you're going to go even further, and you're going to be among the prophets, those speaking, babbling the words of God in crazy sort of divine ways. And you're going to enter into their mix, and the Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to prophesy with them. These three things are here to confirm that you are the chosen prince of Israel. Saul, Sam, Saul this is going to happen to you tomorrow, because God told me this is how it's going to happen. And that's the end of their interaction. Part seven, God's secret proves true. Why? Because God is faithful. Everything he does comes true. Let's read here. Chapter 10, verse 9. And when he turned his back to leave Samuel, so now Saul is leaving, God gave him another heart. 
A lot of people want to spend a lot of time like, is that when he became a Christian or follower? Of, I don't. God's special anointing and spirit is on him. And there's some change happening. How drastic or how permanent that changes, the story kind of leaves us up for debate. But the, he's a new man now. The, like, the, the kingly reality is setting in. And he's changed his heart. And then next part. And all the signs came to pass that day. Everything he said would happen, happened. He doesn't explain two of them. Just verse 10, he talks about the prophetic moment. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he had prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among one of the prophets? Everything God said happened. The two guys, the three guys, and now he's among the prophets. Even so, his people are looking like, this guy, Kish's kid, he's prophesying? Yeah. Why? Because God said it would happen that way. Like, so much of the Christian life is just taking moments to stop and remember God's faithfulness. And Saul is going to be king for 40 years over God's people. And his first interaction with the words of God are three things that all came true. God hoped, God wanted for Saul to stop time after time and look back to God's faithfulness. Remember when you told me this was going to happen, this was going to happen, this was going to happen? And I did it exactly that way. Like the Christian life is one of stopping and reflecting back. Remember we were in this training, we were in a sports ministry, we were going after college athletes and just trying to disciple them and minister them. And we're all talking about apologetics, which is defending the faith. How do you defend the faith? How do you, you know, science and how old is the earth and all these things. And one of my friends, Eli, said, I, can I just say something? I don't, I, whatever to all this. But like when I think about God and when I think about my relationship with God, I just look back to all the times that he has showed up time and time and time again that all this other stuff I don't need. I mean, I'll study and I'll do what I need to for the sake of these young people. But for me, this seems like extra because God has said this and he did this. God has said this and he did this. God has said this and he did this. And Saul, at the beginning of his kingdom, gets to experience a God who is faithful. Every time he dots every I and he crosses every single T. And Saul experiences that. Now, what's he going to do? He's going to go back home and tell everyone, the king is here, as my kids do. Yeah, let's go. Let's see what happens next. Part eight. Saul now has a secret. Chapter 10, verse 14. Saul now heads home. The Lord has just showed up. He's told him he's going to be prince. Three things will confirm that I am speaking the truth. Verse 14, he's back home. Here's his chance to put on the crown, lead his people. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when he saw that they were not found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to him. Here's his moment. Verse 16, and Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. Praise the Lord, we found the donkeys. Continue on. But the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Again, as we're this epic character of God, he did not want this crown. For whatever reason, the Bible doesn't fill in a lot of, but he gets home. He's been told he's king by the man of God. He's here now. I'm going to rule this people. I'm the tallest. I'm the best looking. I'm the greatest warrior. 
I guess I should be. What did he tell you? We got the donkeys. And then he shut up. And God kept coming after him and coming after him because God does what he says he's going to do. So here's what happens now. We're not going to read the... But Samuel says, hey, we've got a king. He's out there. Here's what we're going to do. All the tribes come. There's 12 tribes, 12 sons of Jacob. Let's cast lots. And whatever casting lots is found in the New Testament, Old Testament, sort of God's way to let God's will happen. It's sort of like rolling dice to let God be the one to decide. So there's no sort of cheating. So they cast lots, and the first tribe that gets drawn out is Benjamin. They cast lots again. Out of the clans of Benjamin, which clan shall it be? Cast lots, and just so by coincidence, it's the clan of Saul. And then last lot, out of that clan, which one shall I pick? It's going to be, you guessed it, Saul. Let's read it here. Verse 20, chapter 10. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Check. Then by clans and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. Check. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. Check. Saul, stand up. It's your time. Very next verse. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come. And in the Hebrew, it's sort of a play on word. They inquire of God about Saul, and it's sort of, they're asking for Saul. They're asking for that which cannot be found. Why? Because they ask for a king to rule over them, to give them the good life, apart from God as their king. And now they're asking, is that king here? That king that's going to rule over us like the nations? He cannot be found. Saul, where are you at? Let's continue the story. The Lord, they inquire of the Lord. They at least have the wherewithal to do that. Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and took him from there. So the picture, the tallest, best looking, the studliest guy in this church has a responsibility to do. He's scared. And he comes out of a bunch of luggage that kind of falls off him. There's your king. People of God, you don't want me as king, there's your guy. And it's God's way to bring us full circle. You asked for this. And it says, some people said, yeah. And other people, they call him worthless fellows. This guy, he can't save us. He's hiding in the bags like a three-year-old. So we ask the question, what is Saul's role in the kingdom of God? He's there to be the first king and a constant reminder to the people of God that there has to be a better king coming. There has to be a king who is not hiding in the baggage, who is not just based off looks or height or wealth, but has something deeper, more profound inside of him that makes him eligible to be the leader of God's people. That's what we get when we reject God. We get the souls of the world. We may get close. And some of you right now, I ask this question, who is Jesus to you? Like he may check some of your boxes. He's a great teacher, and I go to him on occasion. He's my savior. I love him because he loves me so much and he dotes on me. Is he your king? Is he the one that you have bowed down to? Spiritually, emotionally, physically. That's my king. Because Saul is here is to remind us that no man on earth, no woman on earth is going to be worthy enough, good enough, strong enough, gracious enough to be the king of anyone in this room, let alone the whole people of God. 
It takes us to last, what can we not miss with Saul as we study him? We cannot miss that he can't be the last king. There's got to be something better. There's got to be another guy coming that's better than this one. Tall, good looking, can't find his donkeys. Another guy found his donkeys. Stand up. I don't want to. I'm going to hide in this baggage. That's your king if you reject God. But there's a better king coming who has some flavor that Saul had. Like the donkey story. Jesus, when he comes into town, remember, God is writing this story for us. And it says, here's how Jesus entered when he had the crown placed on his head. He tells his disciples, go into the village in front of you. We're on entering. You're going to find a donkey tied up. No one has ever sat on it. Untie that donkey and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the king has need of it. Saul, the first one, wander around, can't find his donkey. Jesus, the true king, go into this village, untie this donkey. I know exactly where it's at. I'll tell you the rope used. Untie it, tell the person there the king needs it. And Jesus rides into town on the donkey. That was never lost. He comes further in, closer to his kingdom, coming into And he also receives a kiss like we saw Saul receive as he's anointed. As he's kissed by Samuel saying, you are the one. Kisses him on his head. You're the king. You're the prince of Israel. As we see Jesus come into his kingdom, he's praying right before the crown is placed on his head. And while he's still speaking there, a man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them this crowd of people that were coming to kill and murder Jesus. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And he receives a kiss, not of affirmation from a man of God, but an affirmation of the rejection of mankind. And he gets taken away, bound up to a cross, where he's anointed, not with oil. Picture Saul's head just dripping with oil, you're the king. That oil is a picture. They place a crown on Jesus' head. It says he bled. And there's blood dripping down. And they mockingly say, Behold, your king. Here's the choice for all of us. Are we still looking for the tall, good-looking one? Or do we see Jesus for who he is? Crown of thorns, blood dripping down his face. That's the king that they rejected back then that we don't want to reject now. He is the king. Saul's job is to be a placeholder until Christ showed up. He said, that's how it's done. That's what kingship looks like. Behold your king. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the, the story. Thank you that we don't have a manual that we have to dissect. But we have a story that we get invited into. Thank you for the characters in it that are beloved by you, created by you, and flawed immensely. And obviously flawed as a way to make this abundantly clear for those who have eyes of faith to see there is only one righteous, and his name is Jesus. There is only one worthy to be king. His name is Jesus. So God, I pray this moment would just be a moment of confession, confessing those areas of life where we have lifted up other souls.
to lead us, to guide us, to give us life, to rescue us, to save us. And pray this moment, in this moment, we would loosen the grip on those things and we would reach out to the true King, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who ended the kingdom of Israel once and for all and started the eternal kingdom that all are invited into now by faith. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this time in your word as we gather. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.